This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Alan. So um, let me just put the, the uh, symposium today in a bit of perspective. So um, again, if you look at the advances in light, in both at the science level and the engineering level, the impact of that has, has been across many, many areas. We've heard about communication. You're going to hear, particularly from our keynote speaker, Steve Chu, some, some of the activity, the advanced activity going on in applying light at the health. Many of you are aware of LASIK surgery, cataract surgery that has benefited from, uh, from the laser. Um, environment, the low-energy uh, LED lighting that you will hear about much of that coming out of UCSB fundamentally um, is reducing the amount of energy that's needed in the world. All of this is having impact not just on the developed countries where it's bringing substantial economic growth, but also, as I uh, indicated earlier, in third, third world countries. So I hope that you will go away to, after today and have a better understanding of um, some of what that impact is. Next slide, please. Locally, it's also felt, and, and you may not know it, but these are companies in the greater Santa Barbara area whose basic business has a significant component to do with light and light-enabling technology or um, technologies that enable to leverage the power of light. Many of these are coming from startups from UCSB. Next chart. So a little bit about the session. So we will have um, four sessions. There will be two sessions, then we'll have a break, and then we'll have two more sessions, and then we will have a reception. During that reception, you'll also be able to see poster papers of work that's being done here at UCSB and also some booths that have been set up by local companies. We'll then come back, and we will have uh, kind of turned around from maybe the normal schedule, the keynote address uh, coming from Nobel laureate and former uh, um, um, Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu. One more slide. I would like to thank our sponsors, Corning, HP, and Intel, who have helped to make this day possible. Um, I'm going to do a commercial. Um, it's going to sound like it's for Intel, but it's for our students. Students, you should know that Intel is looking to hire 50 of you um, at kind of all levels. Please don't rush to their booth. There will be time during the break to do that. Uh, I think Wagi from Corning is going to also say that that Corning is looking for, for, for folks. So this is a vital area and one in which the kind of education you students out there are getting in this field will put you in very, very good stead for job hunting. And um, last slide. And we also uh, would like to acknowledge um, these um, supporting sponsors as well. So with that, I would like to kick off the first session. And um, that first session will be kicked off very appropriately by uh, Herb Cromer. And you have, the bio you have the biographies of all of the folks, so I'm not going to go into detail. You've always already seen the, the waving arm of Herb. Um, Herb's Nobel Prize is for something that he will help you to understand. Um, um, heterostructures, which is bringing different materials together. Another example... Of, of something that you will never see. You will never see that interface that makes magic with respect to generating light, with makes magic with respect to making high-speed electronics. But that breakthrough in thought has had a profound impact on the world. And 
I'd like to ask Herb to come up and share that with you. Well, good afternoon. My story starts many years ago, in 1954. I was at the time a member of a small semiconductor research group in Germany, and my own research concerned itself with how can one make uh, transistors faster, because the early transistors in those days uh, were very, very slow to some extent because they had a large base thickness. To another reason was that the fusion of carriers was the basic transport mechanism. And amongst the ideas uh, that uh, occurred to me, how one could improve this one, was the idea to build a device with an energy band structure that looks like this. See, the energy gap in the emitter was larger than the energy gap in the collector, and the, re the base region was actually graded. That grading led to a slope in the base region, and that slope means there's a force acting on the electrons. And this would yield a significant speed advance. But when I told this idea to the person who was the technologist in our group and would have to do this one, uh, he saw absolutely no way how this could be done. And uh, certainly by the technology of those days, this was a correct assessment. Uh, but so he asked, well, the most I could possibly do would be a structure where, uh, as shown on the right-hand side, where you just have a wider gap emitter uh, and where the base itself uh, was uniform. And uh, that, of course, meant that that f force, that quasi-electric field in the base region was gone. And so that seemed to destroy the device. But when I looked at it a little bit more closely, I saw it had advantages in its own right. You see, in order, when the device is forward biased, the electrons have to climb this barrier. But at the same time, holes flow out of the base back into the emitter. And this is a current you didn't want. And if you had a wider energy gap uh, in the emitter, this barrier was much higher. Uh, in the net, and this is fabulously effective in suppressing the undesired flow of holes back out. And you could trade this off uh, by actually increasing the doping in the, in the base the, uh, much higher. So it had a much larger number of holes than you would otherwise have. And those of you who are familiar with semiconductor device theory realize that this will lead to a spectacular advance in performance. And that, in fact, then kicked off the heterostructure bipolar transistor as we know it. Well, this was 1954. Uh, I, there was no technology inside, even for that simplified version. Uh, and uh, but in 57, I was at that time at, at RCA Laboratories in Princeton, and I decided to generalize this beyond transistors. And the idea was uh, that the carrier transport, this was basically a problem in carrier transport in structures with a position-dependent energy band diagram. And this led to the notion uh, of a quasi-electric field and potentials. Uh, and... Uh, I wrote this up in a paper in the RCA Review with a rather odd title. You can read the title here. Uh, and in this paper, there was a picture of three different kinds of energy bands. Uh, and so let us go a little bit, oops, let us go a little bit into this one. Doesn't want to move backwards, it seems. 
Ah, there it is. Uh, if you have a uniform semiconductor, you apply a field. This shows in the band diagram simply as a slope on the two band edges. The slope is the same for the two band edges. And it is the slope in the band edges that actually determines the force on the electron hole. So we have a force of equal magnitude but opposite sign for the two carriers. So one and the other are interrelated. And now, if you have... Come on. All right. Uh, if, you, if you have a variable energy gap, you could, for example, have the structure shown here, where if, if it is n-type doped, the conduction band will be flat, and the energy, entire energy gap difference goes into the valence band, and this acts as a force on holes. Holes are like bubbles in water. They want to rise. Uh, and uh, you could even have something much more dramatic, you could have the force acting in the same direction for both carriers. And this is something that you obviously can never do with ordinary electric fields alone. So there is a direct path from this particular picture to the double heterostructure laser, although I did not recognize at the time that there was this path. Uh, so, well, so the central message is the forces on electrons and holes are decoupled from each other and at least partially from the electric field. Uh, and I read, this is of course a very powerful con consequence uh, and uh, in that paper I put this paragraph which is probably among the most important paragraphs that I've ever written but just please look at that stuff in blue here we call these forces quasi-electric forces they represent a new degree of freedom for the device designer which enables him to obtain eff effects with the quasi-electric forces that are basically impossible to obtain with ordinary electric fields. Uh, there's only one mistake. You shouldn't publish stuff like this in an obscure journal. Uh, well, anyway, this is obviously a very uh, strong argument, a very powerful principle. Uh, and uh, this calls for an example. But the only thing I had been working on transistors, the only thing I could think of was the example of those two bipolar transistor versions uh, that uh, I had. And the question naturally arises, yeah, well, it's an example, but does that really live up to the, uh, to the strong claim that I had made uh, earlier? And, well, I'll come back to that one in a moment, but for now, this, this was basically a solution in search of a problem. And, well, in 1962-63, that solution found its problem and it happened at the 62 the Solid State Device Research Conference, which was in Durham, New Hampshire, which was totally dominated by the new semiconductor laser. Uh, and uh, and I was at that time not really interested in the laser. I was very excited by this, but, but I was working on transistors, and I think I had more important things to do. But a colleague of mine, Saul Miller, who worked at the same company that was very associates, uh, had taken an interest. And in March of 1963, he gave an absolutely beautiful corporate seminar where he talked about everything that had been achieved in the problems. And one of the most severe problems was uh, that there was uh, that continuous operation at room temperature simply wasn't possible, didn't occur. And he concluded that this had been looked at, it was fundamentally impossible. 
Now, fundamentally impossible. What is fundamentally impossible? Well, let me give you here a, a, a picture of that was his basic argument. This is, let us assume you have a PN junction in gallium arsenide, heavily doped on both sides, but with a forward bias applied, so they have basically flat band conditions. Well, you then have a lot of electrons here. You have electron holes here. The electrons diffuse to the right. The holes diffuse to the left. There's a region where you have both electrons and holes, and this is where light emission takes place. But in order for you to have a laser, or for that matter, a really bright LED, you need very, very high electron concentration here. You need a, what is called a population inversion. But now, this is very hard to get because the concentration here is guaranteed to be lower than the concentration here and concentration there. So you need an even heavier doping. Uh, and at the same time as you do this one, all the electrons in the holes happily escape to the other side. So it was a problem, uh, a lack of carrier confinement. Uh, and as Saul Miller had no, no sooner finished uh, his statement that this was fundamentally impossible and his explanation, uh, I simply piped up and said, but that's a pile. And uh, of course, I'm not allowed to show that word, but it's four letters start with a C. Uh, and I simply, from my knowledge of, that, of heterostructures, what they do in transistors, it was obvious what the answer was. Uh, all you have to do, do is put an, a wider energy gap in the two contact regions. So let's show this one. This is what, uh, what this looks like. The barriers here are obvious. The electrons are repelled. The holes are repelled. And so the electron escape, the confinement, no longer was a problem. But this is really only the beginning of the story. Let us increase the bias a little bit. And now you're actually creating a bucket for the electrons. Uh, and a bucket for the holes, an inverted bucket. And it's very obvious that you can have much higher electron concentration inside this bucket than in the region where the electrons come from. The same for the holes. And so this then is basically uh, the invention of the double heterostructural laser. And it's fair to say that the idea came up the moment somebody told me that there was a problem we were solving. Well, let's move on. Uh, well, by hindsight, and I did not realize this at the time, uh, the, this whole idea of a heterostructural light-emitting device uh, should and could have been anticipated. As a result, oops, uh, this is, things hate people, you know. Uh, in 1955, Ruben Brownstein, who later went uh, to UCLA as a professor, had actually demonstrated light emission from gallium arsenide diodes. And I knew about this one because Ruben actually had the office next door to mine at RCA. And so you could not help but being informed. But that was only the beginning of the story. He also put together a primitive optical communication links. On one side, he had a gallium arsenide diode. On the other side, he had a lead sulfide detector. Then he took the signal from a record player, uh, fed it through the system, and on the other side, uh, there was a loudspeaker, and so we could play music through the first optical communications link. You put your hand in the beam, and it stopped the music. You took your hand out, and it resumed. And we had a great deal of fun with this one. 
But why on earth did I not include this in that 1957 paper? Uh, it was a case of total blindness, which I think is not all that uncommon, but I hate to be a victim of this one. Well, anyway, let's go back to 1963. There were four follow-ups. There was a corporate inter internal report. There was a patent. There was a paper. And there was a corporate verdict. And uh, here's the internal report. I will not show it here, but those of you... Uh, who are interested in the history of these sort of things, are invited to look at this one. It is really quite amusing, all the things that got right and all the things that got wrong. Uh, and then there was, of course, that patent. And here's a picture of the patent. You see there's a lot of vertical cavity emission. Uh, but then there's that paper. It, it was rejected by applied physics letters. Uh, this is fairly standard. Uh, and, uh, I, but I got some very questionable advice. I was told not to fight it, but to submit it to the proceedings of the IEEE. They would publish it. Of course, the implication was they would publish anything. And, and it did, in fact, they did publish it, but the question is, but who would, would be those who are interested? Would they actually read it? Well, the, the ultimate end was the corporate verdict. This device will never have any practical applications because it cannot possibly compete with already existing kinds of lasers. And that's true. Uh, you cannot have a clean spectrum like helium nail. You cannot have a power like carbon dioxide. Like carbon dioxide. Uh, and, uh, but nobody asked whether you could do something with it that you couldn't do with existing lasers. And if somebody had asked me that, what to give an application? I wouldn't have been able to answer it because answering it would require inventing an application. I wasn't about to invent compact disks or fiber communications. So I simply had to leave it at this, and my answer to this one was that the principal applications of any sufficiently new and innovative te technology have always been and will continue to be applications created by this technology. Well, of course, seven years later, it did happen. I was, had been excluded from working on this one. Uh, but uh, Alfevre first and Parnish and Hayashi next actually did it. Uh, and uh, the material system was gallium arsenide, aluminum gallium arsenide. The technology was liquid phase epitaxy. And in subsequent years, uh, this uh, continued with molecular beam epitaxy and other uh, techniques. But I think my time is up. So I thank you very much for your invitation. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Um, the next talk will be given by John Bowers. You've um, already heard him introduced by the chancellor. And again, you have the bio, so I won't go into detail um, other than to say that, that John is a faculty member in the Department for Electrical and Computer Engineering and also Materials. Um, he's, uh, he leads the Institute for Energy Efficiency. Uh, he's world-renowned for his work in a number of areas of, of optics and in particular is a true pioneer in driving the combination of light-emitting structures and standard silicon CMOS, which will really bring the power of optics into the domain of that, that very available technology of silicon CMOS. So, John.
How many people does it take to advance the slide? That's the question. So, Thank you, Rod. Um, so I will talk about silica photonics. I'm going to start off and uh, talk about the, the institute that the chancellor mentioned, this American Institute for Integrated Photonics. And uh, this is a lot bigger than me. Uh, lots of companies are involved, far more than are listed here, but in particular the ones on the west coast that are involved and, and actually are sponsoring here are listed here. They're really key members of, of this institute. And then listed below that are all the uh, professors involved. And again, it's a big group of professors doing photonics at UCSB. And then uh, finally down here are the students in, in my group. And I'll show a few of their results at, at the end. So the background for why this institute is happening, in fact, there's a whole series of institutes uh, that have been established, is this. So the United States is great at inventing technology. And, and actually, I mean, Herb's a perfect example of that inventing the double heterostructural laser you know, every laser in the internet uses it, and they're virtually all made in China. So the issue is, we've seen this case of, of advanced technology, and, and we've kind of lost the way to manufacture many things in, in the United States. So whether it be memory, or displays, or lasers, or, or even LEDs, or, or solar cells, most of those things get made in, in Asia in particular. And the point here at the top is key. It, that's true even though the labor cost actually may not be significant. So it may not necessarily be valid that all this technology gets shipped and manufactured elsewhere. Um, and so President Obama about three years ago uh, made this challenge. And the idea is basically, and so for all the grad students and undergrad students here, is basically get people involved in creating and inventing new ideas, much like the heterostructural laser or the gallium nitride LED. And, and to make us as a society makers of things rather than consumers of things. So he proposed a number of institutes that would take the technology coming out of universities and, and government labs and basically get it into the private sector to get over this valley of death that we've seen over and on, over and again. And uh, so he proposed three years ago to establish a network of up to 15 institutes to uh, develop this technology and, and uh, and, and bridge this, this valley of death. So seven have been established to date, and they're listed here. And uh, the first one was America Makes. And there's a number of other ones. The Power America one is one that Umesh Mishra here is involved in, using gallium nitride electronics. Um, the one in particular is in the, red, the blue box down there, AIM Photonics. I'll talk much about that, uh, which was just announced a few months ago. And the most recent one is established also in California, FlexNet, uh, to make flexible electronics. And uh, Michael Chabanek and Tim Chang and others here are, are involved in that one. And that's just getting off the ground. There's one more I'll point out. There's two more coming up I'll point out. But in particular, one very relevant to the Institute is smart manufacturing uh, for energy efficiency. And so that, that one, uh, I think lots of people are, are working on in terms of submitting. Steve Denbars in particular, I think, is leading that effort. So let's talk about AIM Photonics in particular. And uh, so the goal is to uh, make manufacturing of photonic devices very efficient. And so fundamentally, a lot of what we're involved in is the fact that you know, most 3.5 semiconductors are fairly small wafer sizes. They're made in uh, fairly old processing facilities. And a lot of what we're focused on in the Institute, and certainly in our research at UCSB, is taking lasers and modulators, integrated circuits, and putting them on standard silicon CMOS. And, uh, or at least standard silicon wafers fabricated in a CMOS facility. And uh, the corporate sponsors that you see here, Intel, HP, and Corning, are actually very much all involved in this 
as well. It's, it's a natural direction to go to get the cost down, to get the scalability up a lot higher. And uh, Orient Photonics and other sponsors, a company locally doing, doing the same thing. So our goal here is to do multi-project wafer processing. So combine lots of ideas together, just like one does with Moses for electronics, but to do it for photonics. So any sorts of photonic devices. They could be sensors, they could be datacom, telecom, uh, and so forth. And fabricate them in a standard CMOS facility. And the one that we're using is located at SUNY. And as it says up at the top, it's a 1.3 million square foot facility. It's a very advanced 12-inch uh, facility with uh, 65 nanometer lithography. And you can make a variety of photonic devices on that. And uh, so one of the big things that we're bringing, UCSB being a, a real leader in 3.5 technology, is bringing 3.5 into that platform. So for the most part, today it's all silicon, which is good, except you can't get light emission out of it, and, and so you can't integrate lasers with it. And working at ways to put 3.5s on silicon so, and include that in this CMOS facility. This is an org chart just to point out that it's really led uh, primarily by Mike Lear at, at uh, SUNY, uh, but UCSB is involved, and, and Rod's a key member in terms of bringing industry into this. And then there's a bunch of UCSB folks here, Jane Allen, Whitney, Jen, who's been organized a lot of the industrial interactions today. And then there's a lot of work on, uh, obviously, events like today, and also workforce development. So Ophi and Erica and others are looking at training people and, and uh, students to, uh, to find jobs in this area. These are the members. So there's lots of industries besides the one I mentioned uh, throughout the country, and lots of other universities throughout the country as well. But I'd say the main players are SUNY as the host, UCSB is in terms of running the West Coast, MIT, and uh, University of Arizona in particular. So again, the goal here is multi-project wafer runs. Students will sit here uh, and, and design integrated circuits, much more complex than we could fabricate in our clean room and have them fabricated at SUNY and interact with companies that, that can do the same thing. So the idea is to make structures as shown here. They might combine silicon photonic wafers with standard electronic ASIC wafers with passive photonic interposers. So all these things get bonded together on a 12-inch scale. So things today that are a bunch of individual elements connected together all become part of one wafer and get diced up and distributed. So very low cost, very scalable, very high volume. This is one of our first projects that we're involved in. And uh, so this is involving in particular Hewlett Packard and Intel. And the idea is within a data center, you have you know, perhaps a million servers and you need to interconnect those million servers together. And we're gonna make a very complex chip, far more complex than we've made or perhaps anyone has made yet. It involves a whole lot of individual optical switches inside of here, a whole lot of individual detectors, uh, sources, amplifiers, and use it to interconnect a bunch of different nodes. So these might be uh, spline switches within a data center. And so carry through the switch, you know, tens, hundreds of terabits of data interconnecting these different processors together. And again, as we all request different services out of a data center, one has to interconnect these servers in different ways. And that's the goal. In the end, logically, it looks like what's shown here. So this is something we've been involved in at UCSB in terms of design. And we'll now go ahead and have it fabricated. So that's one example, the one up on the upper left, of using this for datacom or telecom. Other examples are RF and analog photonics. Uh, we want to make basically microwave cables that are, that are truly optical. So today, long distance, you know, more than 10 meters of, 
display cables are all optical. They look electrical, but inside they have fiber optic cable and they have lasers and detectors, but they have electrical connectors on the end. And uh, these HDMI cables are optical. Same thing in microwaves. So we replace microwave cables with optical cables because we can get better performance out of it. There's a big effort in terms of integrated biosensors, and uh, Carl Meinhardt and Martin Moskowitz are, are leading that at UCSB. Um, and there's a big effort in, in phased array technologies. And here's one example. This is a chip that we've made. Um, this is actually fabricated by uh, uh, Jared Hume in the upper right corner. And uh, what it is is it's a basically an optical LiDAR. So it's a chip that emits out of this region right here, uh, a beam that emits out of here, and as you change the wavelength of the laser, the laser's over here. It's a little more complicated than those early lasers. There's, there's a lot of stuff there. And uh, it emits angles of a wide direction. Then in this direction, it's an optical phased array. So there's lots of different optical beams. And you adjust the phases, and the beam sweeps in the other direction. So its application is things like LiDAR for cars. So obviously, Google has a self-driving car with a rather large, very expensive optical LiDAR on top of it. We like to make it a chip. And this chip is you know, on the order of you know, a few millimeters by a few millimeters across. So there's a lot of other UCSB research that fits on this platform and other sensors. Uh, current sensors is something we just published a paper on, magnetic field sensors, optical gyroscopes. So again, getting uh, navigation grade uh, navigation on, onto an optical chip. And that, that's, that's the effort of that, that effort. This is part of the electronic photonic design effort that uh, Tim Chang is leading, and uh, there's a lot of other professors involved. But it's doing something that photonics doesn't do yet. And so it's taking all the complexity of electronic design tools from Cadence and Synopsys and companies like that and designing optical circuits that work even though individual elements are not designed correctly or, or don't, maybe they weren't processed exactly the way you'd like. So electronics does this all the time, right? A typical electronic chip has 9 billion transistors in it, and even though some of those transistors may be a little off the design parameters, that whole chip has to work to get the yield right. So in this case, what uh, these guys are doing, led by Hewlett Packard in particular, Ray Beausoleil is here, is looking at the performance of that overall optical chip in terms of its, its uh, system implications, not just the laser, not just the modulator, not just the waveguides or detector, and looking at its overall performance and saying, how do I design for maximum performance or proper bit error rate in this case? So again, it's this variation of where electronic design we're now applying to photonic design. And again, there's a bunch of other companies involved, as I mentioned, Cadence, Synopsys, and Mentor in particular. Another big effort is how do we get lasers on silicon? Laser, silicon doesn't emit light. And so we've got a bunch of efforts. And uh, most of it so far has been based on Art Gossard's work. So Art's been key at growing quantum dots on structures. We're now expanding that to other growth systems like MOCVD systems. And the real advantage is, is lower thresholds and lower cost. So we want to basically not rely on that small indiphosphide wafer, but rely upon a, a large silicon wafer. And so here's just one example of, of some results. Uh, these are lasers that Alan Liu processed and, uh, and grew, and uh, fairly low thresholds, and really actually quite high powers. 180 milliwatts is a lot of power. And uh, there's a picture at the upper right there of what these quantum dots look like, and that's the technology that Art's been developing over the past 20 years. And the last plot here is just sort of how low the thresholds can be with the, for the proper design, and that's really as, as good as just about anything else. So this is my last slide. Um, so we all know about Moore's Law for electronics, and, and obviously how did we get to billions of transistors in a chip? 
Photonics is far behind that. Most photonics today are individual devices, individual lasers or LEDs or detectors. And uh, what's plotted here is, is structures on any phosphide. What's plotted in red are structures on silicon. So we're now up to maybe a few thousand devices integrated together. And in particular, the green triangles are, are work here at integrating lasers. So those are integrated circuits that are uh, utilized lasers uh, in them. So in general, the focus of the Institute is basically primarily photonic integration on silicon. How do we make scalable processes, high volume processes for photonic ICs and enable things like data communications or sensors uh, or, or microwave applications? So thank you very much. Thanks, John. We have time for a couple of questions. Bill. Yeah. John, you uh, talked about having multi-chip projects going on at site. When you talk about photonic devices, how do you negotiate the process for that? Because I think everybody's going to want to do something a little different with what's going on. So that's the problem. Bill's raising the question of, of everybody wants a different process and how do you integrate them all together in one process. So uh, there's two ways of, of doing that. So basically we have a standard process we're starting with and there's only certain things you can make with it. So for instance, Carl Meinhardt's project will be a little tough. The optical spectrometer portion of it, we've got the technology to do. We don't have the MEMS or the microfluidics technology that could be integrated with it today. But over the next year, the goal is to bring in all the microfluidics aspects into that standard program. So the two things you do is you run standard processes and then you keep enhancing that base program. So the base program today does not have lasers integrated either, for that matter. But that's our role is to take our technology and put that on their platform. So over the course of five years, you know, it's hopefully a much more valuable, much more complex program than, than exists today. But uh, just keep enhancing that toolbox of, of what's available. Other questions? If not, thanks, John. Thank you. Great. And for the last talk in this session, uh, we are very, very pleased and honored to have uh, Professor Amnon Yariv, uh, who is the Martin and Eileen Summerfield Professor of Applied Physics and Professor of Electrical Engineering uh, from Caltech. Um, Amnon, as many would say, has written the book quite literally as well as figuratively on optoelectronics. Um, he's had an extended career as a researcher, as a teacher, as an entrepreneur, starting several companies, and um, my takeaway whenever I listen to Amnon is I always learn something that I didn't know before. So his talk today sounds particularly intriguing, light and noise and darkness. Amnon. It's a pleasure to be, to be at Santa Barbara anytime. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've been here a couple of months ago, gave a talk on our specific work at Caltech, kind of a joint project with John Bars. <clears throat> so I want to repeat today, rather than go and describe my own work at Caltech, I'll touch upon it. Uh, try and give you a little trip through the history of light, starting with the beginning of light, I noticed another talk uh, later on today about first light. <clears throat> I'm being a bit, <clears throat> I'll take you through the mythology 
and culture of light and try and combine a bunch of elements which at first sight uh, don't really go together, but hopefully will make some sense. Try to show you how important light was culturally from the beginning or for a long time. What are really the kind of the major intellectual breakthroughs uh, in science that touch on light? And a little bit on the fact that there was an allusion made to that, that I think today major breakthroughs in light and technology are no longer coming from Bell Labs and industrial labs, because those basically have died, maybe an exception here and there. They'll come from universities, from groups like the one in Santa Barbara, who indeed has been stepped into the challenge, done a wonderful job. So with thanks to Rod Alphaness and John Barras for inviting me, I'll embark on our little trip here. Well, beginning 5,776 years ago, uh, the Old Testament, and on the right there. On the right, the King James Version. On the left, the original Hebrew. I'll just read one sentence in Hebrew to get the sense of it. It's the original language. The first sentence of the Old Testament, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But God's first job is light, before anything else. And on day one, God says, let there be light. The motto of the University of California and there was light. And God liked what, what he saw. And he goes on. Okay, so remember, day one, a light. On day four, God makes the two great lights, the sun and the moon. And the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the light we use to see with is the light of the sun. So we have two lights. What's, what's with it? What is what? Well, biblical scholars and rabbinical scholars have been disputing and interpreting this to this day. They haven't settled it yet, so don't expect a clear answer. But in a way, that, <coughs> that dilemma works into my own work, and we'll talk about that. So, to go to get some of the flavor of the interpretation, I went to the Zohar. The Zohar is the basic book of the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mystical interpretation and commentary on the Bible, on the Talmud. Now becoming fashionable in West Los Angeles, the Madonna is a Kabbalist, although the Kabbalah is based on Hebrew, and interpretation of letters and words, it doesn't stop Hollywood from adopting it now. It's fashionable. Anyhow, but the Kabbalah, the, Kabbalah, the Zohar, which is the, the basic book in Sally, Zohar in Hebrew is brightness, light. Again, they chose the word light, and that is really the basic book which governs 
the Hasidic movement in Judaism. And according to them, God made light, but decided very soon that it was too good for human beings. It was too powerful, and took it, withdrew it, took it back. But with a provision that through history, exceptional individuals will be allowed to touch the to touch light, to see it, to do something with it. I'll talk about some of those individuals later on. I'll show you that I'm objective, and none of them is Jewish. And so later, those will be Maxwell, Dirac, and Heisenberg, and show how they affected light. Uh, the Catholic, incidentally, Bible, the, tra- the tr- translation from the Hebrew into Greek, into Latin, instead of saying light, they used the word legos. At first, God created legos, which is, I think, Greek for word, enlightenment. So there's a slight change of interpretation, but okay. While the from the scientist's point of view, probably the most important uh, contribution to light, of course, Maxwell, with his very elegant Maxwell equations, which actually showed that light could exist, did not require a material medium or things to move, but could exist as waves in empty space. And Maxwell equations that in the relativistic extension are linear perfect equations, Erwin Schrödinger, who with Heisenberg and a few other people invented quantum mechanics and the concept of the uncertainty principle. Okay. Oh, maybe I should go a step back. So the conclusion kind of the earlier, the first chapter of Genesis, that there is good light, the pure light, which we can only approach, and then ordinary kind of seeing light. Okay. So the question is... Uh, what is the distinction, the difference between the pure light and the ordinary light? And a first hint of it is Erwin Schrödinger and Heisenberg, who introduced the idea, come up with that out of this simple Schrödinger equation, uh, the concept of uncertainty comes. And that concept applies to light. If you try to generate pure light, According to the Bible, you can't do that. The, the, only God can do that. And according to Erwin Schrödinger, that follows for quantum mechanics. Although the uncertainty principle was understood to apply to electrons, to particles, it was not till Dirac quantized the electromagnetic field that the idea of noise in, at, with light, coherent state, Glauber, a Nobel Prize, uh, became part of the law of quantum mechanics. So those are the people whose phys- mathematical and physical insights led to our essentially modern interpretation of light and the understanding of light. Then, of course, comes Charlie Town. So I consider those three people that I just named as the, among the three people that were allowed to touch light, the, the, the super geniuses. And I think I will enter that stable Charlie Towns, because he made 
invented the laser. Before that, the laser, laser was an extension to optics, which made light, but exact, not perfect light. That we now know, according to quantum mechanics, cannot be done. So a brief history of light. So the laser, very short for the few people here who don't know how laser works. Laser works on basically electrons jumping from occupied orbits, high energy orbits, to lower orbits and giving off the energy difference as light. Okay, what Charlie does is, Charlie Towns, who just died, I think, either this year or a year ago, uh, is take those excited atoms, which can emit light, and put them between two, curved, between two mirrors, actually flat in his case. And in that case, if there's enough excess of electrons in excited orbits, uh, the light emitted, some of it, which happens to point in the right direction, will bounce back and forth and induce more light. Electrons can be induced to come down by light of this proper energy, and that process becomes an avalanche, and lo and behold, you get light. And the probably most coherent, pure light that was ever seen. Okay. But every now and then, one of those atoms decides to come down on its own without being induced. That's the noise. That's what God put there to spoil the purity of the light. So light cannot come pure, a spontaneous emission, and it doesn't take much to show that spontaneous emission is linked uh, umbilically to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can blame spontaneous emission, which is noise on the, on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And it follows from the quantization of the electromagnetic field by Dirac. So all of those people are strongly linked. Okay, so light. Ideal light, as I said, which doesn't exist, will be essentially a pure oscillation at a given point in space, a pure sine wave, okay, obeying Maxwell equation. So that's a, a traveling disturbance. The electrical engineer or the optic engineer will descri describe it as a phaser. That's the phase of the light. But ideal light is not to be found. And if you look, you will find something that looks more like the blue. I'm exaggerating. And why is this deviation from purity? Purity here is red. Two reasons for it. One is the noise. I call it God's noise. I'm not very religious. I'm using the word God today more than I've done in the last 20 years. Uh, so the deviation of ideality is either due to call it the quantum noise, or God's noise, or to information. If you take the pure wave, if you had one, and you imposed information on it, a movie, music, it'll look more like the blue. So the point is that you can see right instinctively from what I've just described, that if you have noise on light, and you have it, always have noise, uh, it interferes with your ability to make information right piggyback on top of the same waves. Because when you separate them, you really don't know, at some limit, what is noise and what is information. <clears throat> okay, another example. Okay, why light? 
I should have said it earlier. If you take a microwave, its oscillation, pure sine wave, ideally, something like that, light <coughs> is a much higher frequency. You can show theoretically that you can essentially put a bit on each peak here. So every peak of the sine wave here can carry one bit, maybe more, and therefore light can carry more information than the microwave by a factor of, <coughs> of roughly 10,000. That's why light is used to convey information <coughs> okay, rather than the microwave. And that shows you an optical wave chopped into bits. Eventually, a bit can be as wide as one, one period. So that's the main reason for the use of light information. <clears throat> okay, I've already described to you the mechanism for generating noise, spontaneous transitions. And at, okay, I'll become a little bit... Uh, at Caltech, we became involved around 1975. And although light must have noise, cannot avoid it, but the quantity of noise, you can massage it while not violating quantum mechanics. <laughs> and one of the ways we use it in 1975 is to take Herbert Kroemer's laser and simply build in a filter into it. You can see the corrugation, corrugated and interface in the multi-layers. That internal filters increased, reduced the noise within allowed quantum mechanical and made the light more pure to a point where it became the main light carrier and has been working, essentially carrying the internet traffic from that time till today. That's, <clears throat> that's the main light carrier, the distributed feedback laser. But recently, the coherence, the purity, the spectral purity, which I said is very important because noise interferes with the amount of information you can carry, has become a liability. That's the DAB laser, been carrying internet traffic for 40 years, is no longer good enough to meet the demands of new applications, especially demands which use the face coherence, the purity of the light. And much of optical communication is today moving toward coherent communication, which is based on phase purity. Okay. So recently at Caltech, over the last five years, in a project which <coughs> involved about two or three generations of graduate students, we took a look and trying to decide why is the laser as noisy as it is. Well, today's laser, you can mostly demonstrate the problem with this slide. This shows the Kramer's double heterostructure. This is the active region where light is generated by transitions of electrons, and this is the stored electromagnetic energy. This medium has a lot of free holes, free electrons, and they absorb light 
So the semiconductor laser in its today's model embodiment, the one you will buy off the shelf, is an extremely noisy device. And it's noisy because of the losses here. To compensate for the loss, you need a lot of excited electrons. Those electrons emit a lot of noise. So the question, do we need the noise? Well, the answer is no. It's simply legacy. That's the way it was made initially. And for a solution, we went to a new approach of designing lasers, which was pioneered here at Santa Barbara with John Bauer's group in the lead. With basic showed you can make lasers on silicon. Well, our idea was immediately, if you can do that, move the energy away. See, this is the active region, the same as this. Move it, design the cavity, and that's all our students can do after two or three years, and concentrate the energy in the silicon, where the losses are ideally, because material is transparent, some, some losses. And when you do that, you, generate, you eliminate 99% of the loss, and therefore 99% of the noise. So by the simple expedient, incidentally, a key figure in that was uh, Christos Santis, who is sitting here somewhere. I will not ask him to write, raise his hand. Uh, he'll be embarrassed. Oh, he raised his hand. And he's a postdoc here. Uh, we made those lasers. Some of the structure. It's a cross-section. And most of the light now sits here in the silicon, over 99%, instead of sitting here before. And that was affected by a cavity redesign, an optical design problem. Not an extremely difficult problem by today's understanding and tools. Without going to a long story, uh, this is a commercial, top quality commercial laser today. It is used in the system, and here are new lasers, and this is a measure of the noise, uh, an, ex an important measure, and it's down by three orders of magnitude, which means, in simple terms, you probably can communicate a thousand times more information. You can get your Netflix movies that much faster. Oh, oh. Okay, this shows our present group. So, as I said, Christos is now here. And Dongwan Kim, Mark Afush, Paula Popescu, Olei Wang, Naresh Satyan, and Yasha Vilanchik. Okay. So, again, I an example of a small group at universities, Santa Barbara, Caltech, I think pointing the way to the future in that direction. There's little question in my mind that this laser or something similar to it will be the working horse of the, probably in the next generation of optical communication technology. Okay, thank you. Is there, we have time for one question. Alan. There is no darkness. <laughs> you know, according to quantum mechanics, uh, 
empty space with nothing in it has zero-point vibrations. So the darkness are the zero-point vibration. And if you read Genesis very carefully, it doesn't again, it says that God separated light and darkness. So by my interpretation, uh, darkness are the zero-point vibration of the electromagnetic field. I want to mention, I spoke to Alan Wilner a little earlier today, and he said that, I'm not sure what sources he was quoting, that light is about as close as you can get to God in this world. So we are in the right profession. Okay, so we are going to the second session, and I'd like to introduce Guy Bazan, who is a faculty member um, in chemistry and in material science, and he will chair the next, next session. Guy. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I have the honor of chairing the session, and I'd like to begin by noting that, life, that light is ubiquitous. It sustains life in this planet, and we use it even when it's not shining, uh, you know, for better or worse. When you drive a car, you're investing or using some energy, some light that fell in this planet millions of years ago. The plants growing outside are carrying out their photosynthesis using light that came out eight minutes ago from the sun. And I found it very interesting in the context of today's uh, presentations uh, the, these beautiful equations that we have for describing light, as beautiful as they are, they don't do a good enough job at describing all of the possible applications that have come out from understanding light, as has been described by uh, our previous speakers and Dean Alfernes from communications to medicine uh, for displays and so forth. And in fact, I was, I was coming up here, and, just, and you might want to check your own pockets. I, I, I have here one very good example. We talked about communications. And, anyways, light emitting diodes. And, and in my op other pocket, if I can find it, a pair of sunglasses, a different kind of light management issue, right? You have to get used to no matter where you go or what you do, you will have to deal with some aspect of light. And maybe this is. Maybe this is why the, the, the reason why the United Nations asked us to pause and sort of think about light and the things that we can uh, do with it. Uh, my work personally uh, concerns how we can design molecules that absorb light. You want it to be red, you want it to be blue. And then how you take the energy that you've stored in that molecule, either to create another photon or to carry up or generate electrical power. Uh, that process, or that study, even though it's been very fundamental, has led to, for example, the design of biosensors that are optically amplified and are now being commercially used uh, in flow cytometry, one of the startup companies that came out uh, from, the, from UCSB, and now other types of molecules that are used in organic solar cells. I, I won't dwell into that. And so, um, just to move along, it's, it's, it's a great privilege for me to introduce the three speakers, um, and we'll they'll talk about very different aspects of our interest, fascination, and application of light. Professor Alan Heger has been introduced before. 
uh, we'll have also uh, Eva Silverstein from Stanford Uni uh, University and Dr. Uh, Bill Parrish, one of our local uh, stars, alumni stars from UCSB. And I'm sure each one of them could probably fill up the next hour, so I'll just go right ahead and, and just make a couple of comments about Alan Heger. Uh, Chancellor Yang already mentioned that he uh, won uh, the Nobel Prize in 2000 in chemistry for the development of uh, conductive polymers. And, you know, it's worthwhile thinking that before his work, uh, plastics were typically thought as the type of materials you would put potatoes in and they're at the grocery store. You put them away in your basket and away you go. But what Alan did was actually demonstrate that these materials could actually do, could be integrated into electronic products. Uh, one clear example are the OLEDs that are used in Samsung uh, cell phones and now uh, also for the fabrication of plastic solar cells, which will be the topic of his discussion. Alan, please. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, plastic LEDs plastic solar cells, I put the word plastic in quotation marks, polymer, LEDs made from polymers, solar cells made from polymers, but special kind of polymers that are semiconductors. Forty years ago, we discovered this class of polymers. I've put a few of the molecular structures here, but there are by now thousands of them. They all have one thing in common, and that is, that is that the bond alternation in every case is the key. There's a single bond and a double bond, and a single bond and a double, etc. That class of materials means that they are semiconductors. These semiconductors, these different molecules, uh, have different energy gaps different semiconductors, different energy gaps. Different energy gaps have different uh, absorption energies, have different emission energies. And I'm not going to identify which is which here, but uh, the point is to show you that with these semiconducting polymers, one can have uh, optical band gaps of any size, from up into the UV down to uh, the deep IR. As you know, Gutenberg invented printing in 1545, but the point here is that these, these molecules are, in fact, can be formulated as inks, but they're inks with electronic functionality, and today, Scientists and engineers and laboratories all over the world are printing electronic circuits. They're printing light-emitting displays, and they're printing solar cells. I just want to show you a little bit, of, give you a little hint into that. This is uh, 25 years ago. We started a company called Uniax, and we got involved in light emission. It turns out. If you take a thin film, 
of one of these semiconducting polymers and put it between two electrodes, it gives off light, electroluminescent, that's called, it gives off light. And if you use one polymer, you get, uh, you get one, color, one color. If you use a different polymer, you get a different color, and you can get red, and you can get green, and you can get blue. You can make all three. And what has happened, of course, is that uh, t today, uh, you can buy products, beautiful white light. The difference, of course, between the white light that I'm showing you here and the white light that you will see or probably know of from the beautiful work of Suji Nakamura is that this is large area. You can go to the store and buy a beautiful lamp that gives off white light very, very thin, millimeter thickness. So for architectural uses and for uh, beautiful uh, lighting, uh, the, these polymers uh, and, and organic molecules have, have come into their own. But not only do they give off light, but they absorb light and that absorption of light can be used to make solar cells, plastic solar cells. Here's an example. Uh, three different polymers were made into thin films of plastic solar cells. And the point I want to make here is that uh, immediate you, immediately you see the novelty in the application. Semi-transparent in this particular case so that you can use them in windows, prevent the light, bright, glaring light from coming in to the building, generate energy from the solar cells, and at the same time save energy because you don't need as much air conditioning. One of the obvious advantages over, say, silicon, which, for which this would be much, much more, would be impossible. Another, another example, uh, they're very lightweight. They're thin and flexible. So the kind of structure, kind of structure that you need to hold them need not be, uh, have the mechanical integrity that you would need to put silicon solar cells uh, over a structure in a parking lot of this kind. It's obvious that uh, plastic solar cell on a greenhouse offers you special advantages. The lightweight and flexibility is important, but it can power the fans and pump the water, et cetera, for remote uh, operation. As you know, uh, solar cells are, are always used for, uh, often used in remote applications. So the conversion of sunlight into electricity is, is, is a three-step process. You first have to absorb the light. This is a 19th century chemistry, basically, but goes on today to uh, synthesize new molecules that do that. And we are con constantly uh, working with new molecules that have spectra that are better suited to absorb the light from the sun. 
You're also, the, the light that's absorbed is neutral. You make an electron hole pair, you make a neutral excitation. And if you want to do any work, you need to separate the charge. And so photoinduced charge transfer, charge separation is a 20th century problem. It was discovered in, 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 in our work in the, uh, in the, in, in the 90s. And now we want to put these things together and make them self-assemble to enable us to make, to make solar cells. That's the problem of today and it's still going on. What we do, in some sense, is very simple. We mix two different components, a donor component and an acceptor component, and they phase separate. Now phase separation is ubiquitous. Peanut butter phase is a phase-separated quantity. But if you have two semiconductors that phase-separate, then at every one of those junctions, these are supposed to be two different semiconductors, the white and the black, at every one of those junctions, you make what Herb Cromer showed is a heterojunction. So here I have a film, which is perhaps... Uh, 100 nanometers in thickness, very thin. Structures which are maybe 20 nanometers in size. And there are heterojunctions everywhere here. And at every one of those heterojunctions, an electron and a hole can be separated. So we call it a, uh, we call it a bulk heterojunction material, and it's the basis of this work on, on plastic solar cells. And, and then of course, the morphology, uh, detailed distribution of, of these structures is very important. Turns out you can play all kinds of tricks. You can make all of those millions, billions of solar cells per square centimeter uh, function in parallel. It happens automatically. This is, this is the IV curve for a solar cell. Here's a picture of me holding one of these things. Uh, important aspect is to have high power conversion efficiency. And that comes from the short circuit current times the open circuit voltage times what is called the fill factor. And that is the area here compared to the total area, which would be defined by this open circuit voltage and a short circuit current. And a great deal of progress has been made. Started off in the 90s at 1%. Uh, today, efficiencies are about 12%, actually somewhat higher because, uh, because the low dielectric constant of these materials, they do not reflect, and the light Output is constant over the nearly constant over the day as the sun comes up and down, so the equivalent efficiency is is actually higher, probably closer to fifteen percent. First experiments that were done were to, to use two very novel materials. This is just a curiosity experiment, and we found we found uh, wonderfully that. Uh, they mixed, they formed, they formed this kind of a 
complex material that I showed you a cartoon of a moment ago, or I showed you a real picture of, so to speak, a moment ago. Here you're supposed to see the black as one of the semiconductors and the white as the other. And the remarkable thing is that this electron transfer process, which is the key to the whole phenomenon, happens in 50 femtoseconds. 50 femtoseconds or less. That's so many zeros, 0.00000015, uh, 13 rather, 1. The open circuit voltage comes from the fact that, uh, that uh, when you excite it and get charge transfer, <clears throat> the Fermi level for the electrons is different from, for the electrons is different than the Fermi level from the holes. That gives you a voltage and drives the whole thing. So we can use molecular design to uh, tune these energy levels and try to improve the system. Here's a cartoon of what happens. Light is absorbed. You get 50 femtoseconds later charge transfer. Uh, that now I have an electron and I have a hole that can go their separate ways uh, to the external electrodes and give energy. I'll skip this. Modern techniques enable us to really find out about that structure. This is transmission electron microscopy, but in the uh, imaging mode, tomography mode, just as you use in an MRI. And we see the structural features that, that, I, that I sketched a few minutes ago. One of the great problems has been to understand how it's possible with a structure like that, where you have a length scale of, of 20 uh, nanometers, to get charge transfer in this very short time. Unfortunately, I don't have time to explain it in detail, but I'll just comment that the, uh, that the answer has to do with the uncertainty principle uh, that was already mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, the fact that you don't know where these excitations are means you have to write a wave function for them, and there's an instantaneous probability that, that you can find an excitation near a heterojunction boundary and get uh, charge separation. So uh, the, the dynamics are the key. What's missing today is to be able to get the carriers out fast. Uh, we need to improve the mobility of the materials. That's why people like Gibazon are trying to make better materials. I think we know how to do that, but uh, that's the next task for the future. So we have now materials which have uh, the right absorption spectrum, and when you put the acceptor in, you can get the rest of it. Uh, Polymer acceptors are, are now showing up with, with high efficiency. Uh, the key is just to get all the carriers out before they recombine. And I'm happy to answer any questions. We have time for a question. Over here, please. Somebody repeated, I didn't understand it. So, did you try to make POS fiber using your optical fiber? Optical fiber? Yeah, 
we can we can make amplifiers, but we we, we don't want to, we don't. These are these are highly highly absorbing. That's the whole point. They they absorb very highly. So I don't want to make an optical fiber. If I misunderstood your question, I don't know. My question. All right, is it, is it on? Okay, so uh, if you know that you can make your polymer into fiber style, yes. To, can you make it? So then probably is the data communication we can use. Your, you know, the fiber to uh, like switching other the you know fiberglass. You can make fiber lasers that way. Yeah, you can do that. All right. Okay. For example, it's been done. You never tried, but you, you, you can make it. It's been done. Okay, all right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, is there one more question? Okay, one more question here. Yeah, thanks, Alan. What do you see as the single biggest opportunity in your field in the next three to five years? What are you most excited about? What am the, I doing now? No, the next, right. next three to five years, what is the biggest opportunity in your field that you're most excited about? Interesting thing is that uh, the initial discoveries were made 40 years ago, and this field is still one of the top five in terms of publications and citations and everything. So there's a lot going on and a lot to do. What I've been working hard and sleep, uh, losing sleep over over the last year is making high mobility field effect transistors. The transistor is the most important circuit element of modern electronics. And nobody thought, certainly I never thought, that we would be able to make FETs because of the disorder. If you, if you cast those solutions, uh, films from solution, there's a lot of disorder. So we found a way around that. And we're now making polymers with mobilities in the range of 50, 70, even approaching 100 may change a lot of things in the future. Okay, let's thank uh, Alan once again. Okay, our, our next speaker will continue our exploration of light. Uh, Professor Eva, Eva Silverstein is, uh, is at Stanford University and also the uh, Stanford Linear Accelerator uh, Center. She'll take us through a journey of understanding of what light is and what it was like many, many eons ago. And uh, she is the recipient of, of many prestigious awards, including the Sloan Research Fellowship, the Bergman Memorial Award, and she was also a MacArthur Fellow. Let's welcome Eva. Well, I'd like to start by thanking the organizers for this wonderful event. Um, I'm amazed, I'm just awed by all of the technological contributions that you all make to the field of light. Um, this will be only scientific, and as a theorist, I can't even give you the most practical science. However, it's very relevant to the year of light because this concerns the first light that we get to see from the very early universe. And what I'm starting with here is an image from the Planck satellite, a, a picture essentially of the light that emanates to us from the time that atoms formed, um, which is highly processed from their sky map, which as you can see is 
at least at high frequencies dominated by our own galaxy, um, but it's understood how to go from this to this pristine picture whose interpretation and exploitation I'd like to share some aspects of with you today. So let me start with this cartoon picture of the history of the universe, which shows a particular slice of time, which is oddly called recombination, but it's the time when atoms, when protons and electrons first combined into atoms, which allowed light then to propagate much more freely toward us. Um, this was detected serendipitously on Earth 50 years ago, so this year we're also celebrating the 50th anniversary of that detection. Um, and uh, it provides both a backlight for a lot of interesting physics and astrophysics that goes on after this last scattering surface of recombination, but also it's sensitive to earlier epochs through small perturbations in the average energy, or it turns out temperature, it's a very thermal distribution of this light, uh, which is sensitive to much earlier conditions. Um, it's sensitive to primordial quantum fluctuations, and this should say even quantum gravity, and I'll get to that. So observers measure the frequency dependence, which gives a very close to a black body distribution, and uh, the spatial dependence, the dependence on scale of this light, um, as well as higher correlators of, of the map of the universe, uh, of the light from the early universe. And lately they've augmented this to detections of its polarization. Uh, and all of this put together, along with many other data sets in cosmology, remain consistent with an extremely simple model of the overall cosmological expansion of the universe, which depends so far on only six parameters. And here's a, two plots that show in Fourier space the scale dependence of the, the light um, processed through the, its propagation to us from the early universe, um, both in temperature and in polarization. And the same theory, as you can see, fits, fits the data per perfectly. Um, as does other data that we know, know about. So here's a slide just flashing a little bit of the progress. So this light, as I'll mention shortly, comes to us almost homogeneously from all directions at a 2.7 degree Kelvin temperature. However, it has fluctuations of one part in 10 to the five, which were first detected by the COBE satellite. And since then, finer and finer resolution telescopes uh, both in space and on the ground, have refined our understanding of the distribution of this light, um, most recently with uh, direct measurements of polarization by a number of projects, including the BICEP Keck team. So I can't share with you the entire model of cosmology that we're talking about, but I want to highlight a few aspects of it. So this is a cartoon picture of the expansion of the universe. We've all heard that the universe is expanding described by some function A of t, the size is a function of time. So I want to highlight two aspects of, of this. Uh, basically, the periods that we believe we know about rather well in which the, the expansion of the universe actually accelerates. Um, and this has all sorts of interesting implications uh, to do with the fact that nearby observers eventually lose causal contact in such a space-time. It's a very interesting and challenging situation that we find ourselves in. The CMB played a leading role in establishing that accelerated expansion is happening now, that we're entering into such a phase now. 
and also gives an enormous amount of evidence for that having happened in the very early universe, and that's what I want to focus on. The original idea for this early universe acceleration, which is known as the theory of inflation, uh, came because people wanted to understand, as, as an attempt to understand, the fact that the light comes to us with the same temperature from all directions up to these tiny fluctuations, which uh, didn't make sense unless you made the universe old enough that the apparent source of that light could have been in contact. So plausibly explaining through thermal equilibrium the, the thermal distribution. Be that as it may, this theory has an enormous payoff having to do with something we heard about already, which is the quantum uncertainty principle, uh, which I'll get to shortly. So how does it work in a little more detail? Uh, we're also celebrating the centennial of Einstein's theory of gravity this year, which relates curvature of space-time, including its expansion, to energy sources. Okay, and so there's a certain kind of energy source that will drive accelerated expansion of the universe, which is basically potential energy, a constant non-diluting source of energy, uh, which in order, which needs to be a, a, a potential energy of some degree of freedom, which I've called phi, is with a non-trivial potential function like this, so that it can drive inflation early on and then exit to the more modest expansion we see later on in cosmology. So um, we'll get later to the fact that these equations require connect corrections from uh, quantum gravity, from the, uh, from the need to connect quantum mechanics to gravity in a sensible way. Um, but before I get there, let me start, do first things first. So we have this potential energy, which is a function of some field that permeates the universe. I'm calling it phi. And it homogeneously evolves to good approximation down this potential, just like in mechanics. Um, however, being a field and being a quantum mechanical degree of freedom, it has fluctuations that you know, are irreducible due, th due to the uncertainty principle. So even if the leading behavior of this field is some homogeneous evolution down this potential, it has fluctuations as a function of space and time, which uh, obey the uncertainty principle and are you know, intrinsically present. In the context of the accelerated expansion, that fact leads to freeze out of these quantum zero point energy fluctuations. Uh, as the universe expands, these waves grow outside the observable horizon and freeze out, um, surviving until later times. And it's these fluctuations which, after inflation ends, then re-enter the observable patch of the universe and provide a beautiful, simple theory of the origin of all structure. Um, it's that theory of a Gaussian random field in the early universe uh, that provides the initial condition for the model that I showed fitting the data so well. Um, similar comments apply to gravitation itself. The geometry of space-time itself is a quantum mechanical variable and fluctuates according to our theoretical understanding. And the period of inflation would also predict uh, that quantum gravitons are produced in the same way that quantum fluctuations of the scalar infloton field are produced. Um, it's an interesting story that if you fold that into the physics during recombination, the period when electron, the electron, proton, et cetera, plasma was combining into atoms, uh, the presence of a gravitational wave during that period would cause a certain form of polarization of the microwave back of the light that comes to us uh, as the CMB. 
And this kind of polarization, called B-mode polarization, because it has a certain kind of curl structure, uh, is a method to look for these quantum graviton waves in the early universe. So the big picture so far, uh, the point so far, is that uh, there's a successful theory in which all structure in the universe can be understood to be, have been seeded by the essential quantum fluctuations of something, um, which fits with this idea of inflation where there needs to be a field whose fluctuations obey the uncertainty principle and produce a very simple power spectrum of perturbations, which depends on only a couple parameters. Um, similar comments apply to these gravitational wave modes, and we parameterize this with their ratio, uh, the tensor to scalar ratio R, which I'll mention further. Okay, so that's uh, the very basic story in a nutshell. Um, and now I want to, thank you, I want to continue to one of the ways that we are exploiting this physics currently, um, given its incredible, incredible precision and given what I'm going to explain is its sensitivity even to quantum gravity effects. So we, we drew this potential energy function just by hand um, so far in this discussion. Uh, but if you simply parameterize our ignorance of the theory of quantum gravity, uh, which again is a, uh, something we know we need to combine general relativity, Einstein's theory, with quantum mechanics, which works so well in uh, regular physics, um, and there's a very standard, well-defined way to parameterize our ignorance, at least, of those corrections and estimate them without putting in, without any tuning, without putting in large or small numbers into the problem. And if you do that, you know, without any knowledge of the details of the theory, you would predict that the, the potential that needs to dominate and, and be very flat for a long time in order to produce this inflationary phase would actually get ruined by the naive estimate for quantum gravity corrections. Um, and so it would be much wilder as a, as a potential energy function than this very smooth, boring thing that I've drawn here. Um, so if you turn this around, it, it really means that in this physics, this inflationary paradigm and uh, the resulting observations are sensitive at some level, some very well-defined level to quantum gravity corrections, which may mean string theory, which is a good candidate for a theory of quantum gravity. I don't want to imply that we can take the data and turn it around to determine the theory of quantum gravity. Uh, that's, it's not enough to do that, but still this first statement is, is true, and we need to model the early universe with control over those effects. Okay, so the greatest sensitivity, in fact, very conveniently comes in the simplest versions of inflation, which are also the ones that would generate a detectable level of these primordial gravitational waves that I was mentioning earlier. So if you do the dumbest thing and imagine this potential that we're for now writing by hand was just a parabola, the field would range over 15 units of the Planck mass scale, which is a ginormous scale at which something breaks down in our understanding of gravity. Um, and very fortunately, the observers uh, expect to be able to detect this tensor to scalar ratio or constrain it at a certain level, this R being 0.01 or 10 to the minus 2 or 3, depending on the details. And that is commensurate with a Planck range of the field strength of this infloton. Okay, so that's one way of saying the sensitivity. So if we just 
parameterized our ignorance of quantum gravity effects, we would be led to draw a potential function which would not inflate unless we fine-tuned it. It would look something like, just to pick a random example, the, the trail of elevation of the continental divide um, versus, say, the roads around Davis, which are flat enough to do inflation. Um, so strictly speaking, we really do require quantum control of quantum gravity effects. So we've gone some way in modeling this in the context of string theory as a candidate for quantum gravity. There are a bunch of scenarios for inflation within that theory which have illustrated various things. In fact, it's played a role in our understanding of the inflationary paradigm itself um, and has stimulated a more systematic set of data searches and so on. Um, let me focus on the large field case which generates tensor or gravitational wave modes. Rather than this random picture from the left where we just parameterize our ignorance, in the corresponding directions in the scalar fields in string theory, one finds a much more regular picture, which is depicted on the right. Um, I won't go into the details here, but it has various features, such as naturally uh, flattening the potential energy function relative, say, to a simple quadratic function, um, simply because the high energy, the massive degrees of freedom involved in the way that the theory completes gravity naturally adjust in an energetically favorable way, and, and so the potential ends up flatter at large values of the field than it would otherwise. It also has other structures that are continuing to motivate searches in the microwave background data. Um, this first point actually... Uh, accounts for these models being continuing to be viable even when now, in the, according to the latest data releases, the classic uh, phi-squared potential is essentially ruled out or very strongly disfavored. Uh, this effect that comes in through the quantum gravity corrections uh, accounts for the continued viability of these, these models of inflation. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they're correct, but it's uh, a, a so far, a good test. Um, they'll be tested very uh, strongly soon by the immense progress being made by the observers in uh, constraining and possibly detecting this uh, gravitational wave signature. So you might have heard a lot about this over the past year. Um, the experiments have gotten extremely sensitive to the extent that they will reach down to the uh, range of energies and field strengths um, that we're talking about uh, you know, in the next round of, of experiments that are, in fact, many of which are currently taking data. Uh, and for what it's worth, these examples in, in string theory, uh, which take into account the need to control quantum gravity, will be among the next that will be tested by this. Okay, so that, let me just, I think I'm over time, so let me just uh, stop and summarize. Um, so the big picture, again, is that the big picture, the earliest light from the early universe, gives us precision cosmology and, a, and an understanding of the seeds of all structure as coming from the uncertainty principle. Um, there's a huge ongoing effort to go after these primordial gravitational waves which are sensitive not just to quantum mechanics, but to quantum gravity. Um, and even this is, this is even enabling some traditional science with string theory, which is uh, kind of a new thing. So thank you very much.
Questions? Comments? Disagreements? Oh. <laughs> As a theorist, are there, are there experimental things that you need that you don't have, like measuring higher frequencies or lower frequencies or something like that that would help elucidate some of these issues? Well, since you mentioned frequencies, I can say that the biggest challenge that was understood better over the last year was that uh, the, the foreground sources uh, of microwave radiation compete with the, with the um, potential background source, the, the polarized B-mode light. And it's exactly by laying down a, a wide swath of frequencies that the experimentalists hope to be able to disentangle the two. So the CMB is very thermal. The other sources are not, not, uh, not thermal, not at the same temperature. So that's exactly the, the program going on now. And um, the you know, prognosis is, is good. People think they'll be able to disentangle it using, using many frequencies. Um, the field is plan, you know, hoping to just go out and collect every possible mode that we can of this light. We know how far it can go. There are, you know, since it's a Gaussian random field, there's a, there's a limit on how far we can go. And um, there you know, are proposals out there to, in addition to doing the things I explicitly said, to, to continue the program, get finer resolution, and just collect every mode we possibly can. And uh, part of the reason for that is uh, searches for additional physics. I think Ivan's going to be around. If there are any further questions, let's thank her once again. So uh, to conclude this session, it, it, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, one of our alumni, Bill Parrish, who I just uh, met recently. He graduated from UCSB in 1976. And, and in fact, we, we had some discussions or showcased some of the some of the success of our entrepreneurs, and he, I think he embodies the, that, that type of success that's made UCSB so, so well known. And so we, actually, we owe our alumni a lot, of, a lot, a lot in general. And, uh, but just to give you a little bit of background, uh, he, in 1981, he founded and became CEO of Amber Engineering, a company that focused on developing infrared technologies um, you know, as I said, his abilities to, in to incorporate engineering and business know-how led to uh, the successful acquisition of Amber by Raytheon. He was also the founder and original CEO and board of directors, chairman of Indigo Systems until its successful merger. And more recently, Bill has founded uh, Seek Thermal uh, with the intent of uh, introducing infrared cameras uh, to everyday consumers. And, and the title of his uh, presentation is shown here, Energy Awareness, Seeing Energy to Save Energy. Let's welcome Bill to the podium. Thank you. Thank you. Um, microphone's good. Um, my talk's going to be a little bit more about <clears throat> sociology. It's going to be about awareness of energy and where we are in our world today, and to talk a little bit about how a technology is going to add to this awareness and where it's, where it's been and where it's going. Um, seeing energy to save energy. So we have five senses. We can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. But our touch is really multiple things. It's tactile, and when somebody 
stabs you or hits you, it's pain. But also, you can feel heat. So uh, we actually, as humans go out, we want to, to feel heat. We, we touch something. If it's cold, we feel cold, hot, hot. If you touch the burner there, you get burned and you, you, uh, you see plenty of heat. So basically, everything that we, we have in this world that we perceive gives off light. And the hotter it is, the more light it gives off. And eventually, once it gets hot enough, like this burner on the stove, um, we can actually see it with our eyes. But well before that, uh, there's light that's being given off that if we could see it, we could say something uh, about energy. Since most energy, when you use it and dissipate it, it ends up as heat, by actually being able to see heat, you're actually seeing the residual, if you will, of energy. You're seeing energy. So with some awareness and being able to see this stuff, it really will change the world. But um, So here's the sun. We see reflected light here at, uh, at 5,500 degrees. We see plenty of light, and uh, I'm not sure you can see it here, but there's a rainbow in there, and the middle of that is green light at about half a micron, wide, <clears throat> half a micron in wavelength. But... Uh, if we were walking outside in a warm Santa Barbara day uh, at 300 degrees Kelvin or 27 centigrade, uh, we see that light's being given off at about 10 microns, 20 times longer wavelength and about 3 million times less intensive per, per micron. So if you want to see this light, you need some pretty sensitive detectors. Well, if you can see this light, the world changes because uh, the, light, the world becomes a light bulb. Uh, you can see in total darkness, which has some real advantages for this technology. You can see uh, things, energy being given off by something, maybe a machine that's beginning to wear and it heats up a little bit so you can monitor and predict failures. Firefighters like it because particles of smoke are generally smaller than wavelength and we seem to be able to see through, through smoke. And if you're willing to uh, put a little spectral filter in front of this thing, uh, in the absorption band of some natural gas, you can actually see, make natural gas leaking look like smoke, which has other interesting applications. Well, this is pretty much the story of my life. Um, uh, today, we're leading ourselves to, as I say, ubiquitous, affordable thermal imagers. Uh, back in the 70s, um, Herb Cromer was working on multi-layer heterostructures for faster transistors and light emission. At the same time, there was work going on building uh, cryogenically cooled uh, multi-level heterojunctions to try to absorb these low-energy photons um, using uh, liquid, I mean, <clears throat> helium fluid uh, mechanical coolers. Not necessarily a very inexpensive way to see infrared, but it was very sensitive. And since that time, there's been this logarithmic decrease in the cost of this technology, moving from a relatively high-level technology involving lots of quantum mechanics down into something where the mechanical engineer has taken over and building a simple MEM structure that I'll talk about uh, to eventually integrating the full sensor onto a, to a single chip. And today, um, we're seeing cameras, commercial cameras, being built and sold by multiple companies, including Mars, where a simple little structured camera can actually see this thermal light pretty well and allow us to see energy. 
Uh, as time goes on, I'm going to project, because that's going to be really one of the questions, where does this go? I mean, can this, this uh, curve continue? And of course it can. It uh, won't be too long before we'll have devices well under $100 working in Internet of Things, fully integrated systems uh, on basically just a chip that'll be able to see uh, thermal energy or heat. Well, the structure to do this, to be able to do this imagery, is, is, a, is a MEM structure. It's, a, it's quite elegant. It has the ability to see a few ten thousandths of a degree change, and it's on a membrane. It's, uh, it operates in a vacuum, but it's basically a little umbrella that collects infrared light coming in and hitting it, and it changes its temperature a little bit. So if you can put an, an optic in front of this thing and focus light on it, it can actually produce an electrical signal that, that sees thermal energy. And systems today can see things on the order of 20, 30 millikelvin type of temperature changers, which are certainly uh, sensitive enough to see um, lots, of, lots of interesting things in the thermal image. So what do you use it for, and how does this impact us from a sociological point of view? Well, all of a sudden, if you have a thermal sensor that costs... 200 a day, 100 tomorrow, it all of a sudden becomes part of our lives, part of our, just like a cell phone or a, um, some of the other electronic things that you have in your lives that are beginning to change you socially. Seeing things in a thermal sense or in an energy sense makes you aware of energy, makes you look around the room and see uh, Stephen Chu's uh, tabletop box and the fact that it's hot. You don't have to go over and put your hand on it, you can see it. You see the lights being left on, you see the wall warts dissipating power, and you become aware of what's making your electric meter go around. If you just take the case that I've got here of, of imaging energy leaks, uh, we see that basically 40% uh, of the energy that we use is in terms of we use it in buildings. And of that energy, uh, we see something like a third of it being used to heat and cool those buildings, residences, office buildings, factories. So if you ju could just make a 10% difference in that, you'd be saving uh, better than a quadrillion BTUs annually, every year, continuing after you've plugged the leaks, made your buildings more efficient, became more aware of what was plugged into the wall, dissipating energy. And that wraps up today's world economically to about 20 billion a year. So basically, my message here is to tell you that this technology is here. It's ubiquitous. It'll be part of your lives. How many out there have actually uh, played around or used a thermal camera before? Very few. I'm here to tell you that next year and the year after, that a lot more hands are going to go up because you'll be seeing it more and more used in, in lots of different applications. Um, and a lot of them will have a great deal of impact on energy use. There's our, our city in terms of, uh, of energy. Thank you very much. Questions? At the back, please. Right, the the, uh, the little little umbrella that that collects the uh, the heat energy coming in. Uh, actually needs, heats up and cools off, and we translate that using a high TCR material and changing its resistance, and we measure that small change in resistance. It's a little bit, uh, little bit 
um, like the uncertainty principle, in order to be able to measure that, you have to heat it up by sending electricity through it to, to measure its resistance. We happen to use vanadium oxide. Others use amorphous silicon. Uh, there's a variety of different materials, but those are the two most popular today. John? Uh, the ones I'm showing uh, have about just 30,000 pixels in them that are the couple hundred thousand dollar, I mean, excuse me, a couple hundred dollar versions. Uh, of course, the, the military and whatnot build HDV, HD versions of these things with millions of pixels of them today. But today there's sufficient resolution to be able to look out there and see, uh, see a lot of things. Let's thank Bill once again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.